0: Matthew chapter 6, hopefully in the next four weeks this passage is going to become our very best friend because it's going to teach us not just what to pray, but it's going to teach us what prayer is. It's going to teach us how we should pray. Now, it's my belief that because this is the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus included this teaching eventually in his primary sermons as he traveled. But Mark describes how this teaching first came about. His followers were watching his spiritual life. Scripture records that he would often go off on his own and be with God in prayer. Their God, the God that their people have been worshiping for generation upon generation. What they see in Jesus is so different. that They say, Lord, we want that. Teach now. What is it you do when you go over there? And so we, the disciples of Jesus 2,000 years later, find ourselves in that same place. Jesus had something that we hunger for, and we are crying out, Lord, teach us, teach us what it is to really talk to God. We're going to use the Matthew 6 passage, verse 5. And when you pray, do not be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray, standing in the synagogues and on the street corners, to be seen by men, I tell you the truth, they have received their reward in full. And when you pray, go into your room, close the door, pray to your father who is unseen. Then your father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not keep on babbling like pagans, for they think they will be heard because of their many words. Do not be like them, for your father knows what you need before you ask him. This, then, is how you should pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread. Forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. For if you forgive men when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive men their sins, your Father will not forgive your sins. Today, what we're going to do in just a few moments is an overview of the Lord's Prayer. What I want you to focus on right now is that very phrase, This then is how you're to pray. Notice it's the word how, not the word what. This is a model. It's the corrective for all the other things in the Bible about prayer. And when people don't start here and they go to those other places, then they abuse prayer. They misunderstand it. They turn it into something it's not meant to be. This is how you should pray. And he starts by saying, this is how you shouldn't. Not like our religious leaders, the hypocrites, because they pray for show. Not like the pagans, because they pray for dough. Sorry, I just thought of that. I I don't know if that's going (laughs) to... Stay on the recording, but I think you know what I'm getting at here. They pray to receive, and they think they're going to get it by virtue of their many words. Jesus says there's lots of ways that people think is good prayer. And then he says, but this is how you're really supposed to pray. Let me take and give you five things about prayer that I think Jesus is trying to help us understand. The first is that prayer, if it's nothing else, is relationship. And that's the phrase we're going to look at for a few moments today. Our Father in heaven. The second is that prayer is commitment. Hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will. There's a level of commitment that it means to be a child of God to his name, to his kingdom, and to his will in our lives. The third area is prayer is Reliance. Remember, at the very beginning of this, one of the things Jesus says that you shouldn't pray for is just to get your needs out there because your heavenly Father does know what you need. So prayer is less about the asking, and yet Jesus offers four things that we bring to the Father. Give us, forgive us, lead us, and deliver us. Christ already knows what we need. Why ask? Because we need to remember our reliance on him The fourth thing that prayer is is submission. Even though I've brought these things that I know are about my life and my needs, in the end, I remember it's about you. Yours is the kingdom. Yours is the power. Yours is the glory. This cluster of terms that help us understand the nature of prayer as submission to the will of God. C.S. Lewis. One of his most famous and simple quotes was, I don't pray to change God's mind. I pray so that God will change my mind. I think that ought to be true of all of us. Ultimately, prayer is a surrendering to who God is and what he wants in our lives. And then finally, prayer is agreement. And that's just wrapped up in that last phrase. Amen. I'm with you in this. Lord, I want what you want. It's not like the magical way to end the prayer that moves it into motion so that it happens. Just like saying, dear Jesus is the beginning that gets God's attention. I got news for you. We already have God's attention. His face is right on us. He just wants us to seek it, to seek his face. You need to first dismiss this notion that the meat of the prayer is somehow in the middle And you have these bookends that are how you start praying and how you end praying. You start praying by addressing God. Think of it as a business letter to heaven. Our Father is sort of the equivalent to to whom it may concern. Dear John, dear Lord. We start it like this is just formal introduction. And then once we've said everything that matters, then we're just going to close by saying amen. And that's a way to let God know we're done. You see, everything that Jesus puts in this prayer is part of what prayer is. And so when we come to this first section, these first three words, they are not just the first thing that Jesus says. I think they're foremost. I think there is no prayer that is authentic prayer if it doesn't flow out of these words, our Father in heaven. And to the degree that we do not grasp that prayer is nothing less than relationship and intimacy with God, we will never be true prayers. That's how important what I want to share with you in these few minutes today is. Prayer is first and foremost relationship with God. He says it very simply, and we're so familiar to it that we might miss the significance of it to the listeners of the day. Our Father in heaven, well, we've heard that. I want to put you in the, in the hearts of the first listeners to that today. But before I do that, I want to talk about three dynamics that are part of this, the first community. You know throughout this whole prayer, it's plural, our, us, we. So even though Jesus says don't pray like those who pray publicly for acclaim, but go into your closet, he's not teaching that prayer is just a private thing. It isn't. What he's basically saying is if you can't pray for God's ears alone, then you don't pray. But prayer is something that is not just between you and God. It's an us thing. Our Father who art in heaven. Now, not only is it about community for us, who was saying these words? Jesus. So when Jesus says, our Father who art in heaven, he's including himself, I believe. And that's one of the great secrets. We are able to call Yahweh Father because we come to him in Christ. He is the true mediator between God and man. Without the ability to come to the creator God through Jesus... He is just that. He is the mysterious creator God. He is only father because Jesus makes it possible. And therefore, when we pray, we are always praying, listen, with Jesus. And when Jesus says, it is our father that we're talking to, what he's saying is, I'm giving you the privilege of entering into prayer as I have known it with my father since eternity past. And I'm the one that's going to make it possible for you. We're doing this together. It's community. It's also family, father. We're going to spend most of our our time on that, so let me just glance over that for now so I can come back to it strong. And then it's about authority. Yes, he's our father, but it's about our father who is large and in charge. (laughs) It's about our father who is in heaven. The Greek word that is used here, now remember, Jesus spoke in Aramaic, but when the writers took what he taught and changed into Greek, the common tongue, the words they use matter a great deal. The word that Jesus used in Aramaic, the Greek equivalent, is pater, father. It's a more formal version, but it is familial. He's our father, and he's in heaven. So God being in heaven reminds us that he's, on the throne, that's where he is. And we have access to that God as our Father within the family of faith that's possible in Jesus. That's really, really powerful. I want to go back and just focus now on what I think is the most critical piece of understanding prayer's relationship, and that's the whole notion, the insane idea, I would dare say, the heresy of its day that God could ever be named something as familiar, even as pater, as father. For the people listening, for these followers of Jesus listening, what was most radical about this prayer that made it what Jesus did differently than anybody else was not that he gave glory to the Father. Certainly... The Old Testament had taught them to do that well. It was not that he presented needs and confessed reliance. They, they knew that. It wasn't that God was to receive the glory. The Hebrew people well understood that. The thing, and this is what you have to understand, the thing that sets Jesus' teaching on prayer apart from anything they'd ever experienced is this whole radical notion that we could address God with such familiarity. You see, for the Hebrew people, prayer can best be understood through two things. The first is the very name of God to them. You see, the true name of God, to this day, we actually don't know what it is because it could never be said. The best thing that we have that in Scripture refers to the true name of God is actually four consonants, Y-H-W-H. The name of God was so sacred, they could not write it out. To this day, we don't know what the vowels were and where they went. We use the term Yahweh, but Yahweh is not the true name of God. The true name of God is never to be spoken. To the best that we can understand, when they came across it, when they were reading it out loud, replace it with another word that you'll find in the Old Testament for God, and that's Adonai. You know how in the Old Testament sometimes Lord is all capitals? And sometimes Lord is capital L, lowercase, O-R-D. When you see all the capitals, that's uh, Yahweh. That's Y-H-W-H. And when you see the capitals of lowercase, that's Adonai, Lord. And then when you see them together, it would be Lord God Almighty. When you see God in the Old Testament, that's the ancient term Elohim. But the name of God is so sacred that they couldn't even speak it. For us today to stand up here and actually give volume to it, Yahweh, to sing songs about Yahweh, is not a Hebrew tradition. It's scandalous. The true name of God was only spoken once a year when the high priest went into the Holy of Holies. And when they had to say it, the, the fear, the trembling of saying it in any way that, that others would hear, so what they basically did was simply use the consonants. So what you might hear when they were referring to God would simply be, So imagine yourself growing up under that tradition, approaching this God in prayer. This is a God whose name cannot even be mentioned, which tells us He is completely other and unapproachable. And then you have this physical object lesson of the veil in the temple, which just reinforces that completely. You see, the veil stood between two different compartments that only those who served as priests had access to. There was the holy place, and there they would serve, and they would do some of the daily routines uh, that were prescribed in the Old Testament for worship of Jehovah. And then in front of them was this huge and heavy veil, and embroidered into that were these warrior angels known as cherubim. It was meant, as I see it, to remind them of the fall because the cherubim stood at the garden when Adam and Eve were forced to leave the garden because of their sin. You see, the Garden of Eden was the original place that spoke about what life was meant to be, intimacy with God. Father, creator, children created in intimacy. Sin destroyed that. Sin became a barrier. God through Isaiah says, your sins have put a separation between you and me. So we have this incredible intimacy in the garden, and then it lost completely. And Adam and Eve are pushed out into the world, away from this place that was about intimacy with God. And God put warrior-class angels at the entryway to the garden. That's a cherubim war. The angels feared the cherubim. And so those cherubim in that veil said to all who came near, God is beyond here, and you may not tread. Beyond the veil was the Holy of Holies, the Ark of the Covenant, the place where the Shekinah glory in the Old Testament would come and manifest its presence. The Shekinah glory being the pillar of smoke and and fire that led Israel, the physical representation of the very presence of God would dwell in that place. And no person could enter except the high priest and only once a year and only with blood. It was these ideas that were at the base of the children of Israel when they thought of prayer. They had a rich tradition of prayer. It was formal. It was grand and epic, but never intimate. How dare they even consider that? They weren't even on a first-name basis with their own God. Think about that. Based on that, do you think they were a little startled when they saw this degree of intimacy that they observed between Jesus and God? And do you think it took them a while to work up the courage to even ask, could I have this? Could this be mine also? And so you have to understand the absolute most radical teaching that Jesus gives in relation to what prayer is is to say to us that the rules are changing. The reason why you see me go off and you see a connection with God that you've never seen before is because He is my Father. And I have come to make it possible for every one of you to call Him the very same. That is the core of the teaching. We've covered it right now. Now, there's a lot more to learn. But if you don't get this, you'll miss everything. It's all about the relationship. So Jesus comes and He makes that relationship possible. What happens? Jesus begins calling God potter, father. He encourages us to begin thinking about him in those terms. (laughs) How does he make it possible? How do we know that we can do that? Well, one of the great symbolic shifts between Old Testament and New Testament centers around the veil itself because Scripture records that that veil that had stood for generation upon generation... And in every temple that had been built since the original, it had been carefully reconstructed and put back in place. That veil that stood to say, God is with you and among you, but you cannot be with him. That veil, when Jesus cried out, it is finished, and gave his life for our sins, was torn from the top to the bottom. I think God reached out of heaven and said, we just don't need this anymore. And that's why Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 5, we are new creations in Christ. The old has gone. The new has come. In the same way Adam and Eve were able to walk intimate with their father. Now once again, God draws near to us because of Jesus Christ. And the writer of Hebrews says it so beautifully. He talks about the the priests that stood before this veil and the high priest that went behind and all this ritual that really served nothing except for short-term confession. And then Christ came and his body, which became our sin, the sin was the true veil. That's what it was. And when Christ, who became our sin, was torn, the veil was torn away and the way was made to the intimate presence of the Father. And the writer of Hebrews, imagine the scandal of this, writing to the Hebrew people, let us come boldly into the Holy of Holies. I think as many people read that and said, find this author and stone him, has found that an attractive thought. But once we see Jesus and the intimacy, we understand that place with the Father is not one to be feared. The only thing that ever made that fearful was sin and the weight of guilt. And Christ has removed it once and for all. I can come boldly. I want you just to look with me very quickly in the book of Galatians. Verse 26, chapter 3, Galatians. A little bit of teaching on it uh, to build this idea of fatherhood. You are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourself with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus if you belong to Christ. And then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. What I'm saying is that as long as the heir is a child... He is no different from a slave. Although he owns the whole estate, he is subject to the guardians and trustees until the time set by his father. So also when we were children, we were in slavery under the basic principles of the world. But when the time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, that we might receive the full rights as sons Because you are sons, God sent the spirit of his son into your hearts, the spirit who calls out Abba, which means, what does Abba mean as opposed to Pater? Abba is, yeah, it's Papa, Daddy. So, you are no longer a slave, but a son. And since you are a son, God has made you also an heir. Now, can I just ask an honest question? How many of you out there were reading that and going, there it is again, son, 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 son. I'm a woman. How many of you had a little bit of a reaction to that? Because I think for, for women, coming at some of these teachings where uh, the masculine is used so consistently, women have had to learn to adapt and think of that more broadly. Right now, we're in this stage where we're trying to come up with what we call gender-neutral Uh, interpretations. You can go out and buy an NIV that's gender neutral. And so what it would say here is children of God instead of sons of God. Now, the Greek language here does say sons. This is one of those little teaching moments that I hope is liberating. I think the worst thing we can do is to begin to change what the Bible says in a way that for our generation is less uh, offensive. Because sometimes there's a deeper meaning than what we see And were you to go into this very passage that I just read and read this gender neutral thing, you'd miss the power of what Paul is teaching. This is a misnomer that Paul was somehow the chauvinist. Jesus was the revolutionary who elevated women, and Paul was the chauvinist that put them back in their place. We don't get it because we don't understand what he's saying. There's a reason why. Paul says, You are sons of God. He's not being stuck in this male idea. He's actually rebelling against it. And you would miss that if your sense of what's right forced you to go and buy one of these gender neutral Bibles. Because then you don't really have the Bible. You have a Bible that's been made safe by somebody else's ideas. I'm challenging you to trust what God's Word says and let it speak for itself. And believe that there is truth that transcends our cultural offensiveness. What is it that Paul means when he says we are all sons of God? Is he just talking to the men in the group? No. That's the important thing. Women, Paul is calling you sons of God. Read on. He says, you are all sons of God through the faith in Christ. Because of that, there's neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male or female. We have all become heirs according to the promise. Paul is throwing the traditions of his day right in the face of the conservatives because it was the sons who were the ones that had the access to the father. It was the sons who were heirs. And what he means by that is what culture assigns only to the men, God assigns to all of his children. You see, sonship here is about being an heir. So when you read this, what you want to do is circle these words, Verse 26, circle sons. Verse 28, circle male and female. Verse 29, circle heirs. And then go forward and look at where it says, so you are no longer a slave but a son. Since you are a son, God has made you also an heir. And say that is for all of God's children. That's what Paul is saying. Now, you see what you would have missed if your little social contemporary offensiveness made you just go out and buy a Bible that dared to change what Paul wrote? See what you'd miss? It's a very powerful thing. I think there's a great intentionality in this play of words. You are sons of God, male and female, heirs to the throne. That's what he's saying. I love that thought. And then I want to just... Quickly talk about a couple of the things here. In, in the beginning of the verse, he talks about when you're children, you're more like slaves. In other words, even though you're cared for and someday you'll receive the inheritance, when you're a child, you, you don't really get to call your own shots. Uh, you know, your parents call the shots, you're under authority, you're, you maybe get allowance, but you don't get your inheritance, so your life is limited, not unlike a slave. Here's another really, I think, a really powerful thing. When Paul uses the term Abba, he's referring to it in the context of you and I no longer being infants with God, but being mature heirs of God. When we think of the idea of Abba as childlike faith, Paul sees it as matured faith. Our concepts where Abba is like us reducing ourselves to simplicity and dependency on God We see it that way, and we see pater as the more formal. It's actually just the opposite. Jesus is introducing in the prayer to spiritual infants the notion of referring to God as paternal. It is the infantile notion of God that makes him pater. He's bigger than me. It's that awe kind of a thing. And it's the heirs, the ones who have been freed, who have been matured and given their full sonship that get to call him Papa. I love that thought. It's in the maturing, it's in the embracing our inheritance in Christ that the intimacy deepens. We are sons and daughters of God. How did we become that? John 1, 12, let's say it together. To all who receive him, To those who believe in his name, he gives the right to become children of God. This is the gospel. And what this brings us to is what Jesus always brought us to, why he came. Even his teaching on prayer about the gospel. Real prayer flows out of relationship, and relationship only happens through the new birth. By our coming by faith to Jesus. So that leads us to several thoughts today. Uh, One of the questions might be for you, if God does still seem like that Old Testament God and you've tried to reach him but it just seems like there's nothing working, nothing happening, no, no relationship there, maybe the problem is you've never made that step of faith to come to Christ, to believe in him and to surrender to him as your savior. For you, the real lesson on prayer is to get into relationship with him. Come to faith. You could do that right now today. Simple turning of dependency on yourself for being right in life to dependency on God through the work of Christ. It's a confession of your sin and his death as what paid for it. It's a belief and a reliance and a surrender to him as your Savior and Lord. You could be sitting here even as I'm verbalizing it, saying, that's what I want. And God hears that prayer. And for the rest of us who have known Christ for the corrective here, Maybe to weep over the fact that we think that we could have turned prayer into anything else without this incredible joy of ever deepening our relationship with God. It's all about relationship. It's nothing else. And the cross is what made it possible. We're going to come to the Lord's table today. I'm going to remind ourselves of the action of immense love that both the Father and the Son undertook, the Father in sending His Son, the Son in allowing His body to be offered and bruised and His blood shed for us so that the veil, the barrier between us and Creator could be removed and we could, by faith, come and live in intimacy and dare to call Yahweh, Father, Father, Let's take a moment and pray together.